Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the New Books in African Studies, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Elisa Prosperetti. Today, I'll be talking to Professor Lynn M. Thomas about her brand new book, Beneath the Surface, A Transnational History of Skin Lighteners. Beneath the Surface was published in January 2020 by Duke University Press as part of their Theory and Forum series. Lynn is a professor of history at the University of Washington. Prior to Beneath the Surface, she published The Politics of the Womb, Women, Reproduction, and the State in Kenya. The Modern Girl Around the World, Consumption, Modernity, and Globalization, as part of the Modern Girl Around the World Research Collective, and in 2009, co-edited Love in Africa. Lynn Thomas, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I wonder if you could begin by telling us a little bit about yourself and particularly how you became a historian of Africa. So, yeah, um, I was an undergraduate in the mid to late 1980s um, at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore. Um, And at that time, the anti-apartheid movement was pretty much the biggest political issue on campus. Um, And I got involved in that movement at the same time that I shifted to being a history major. Um, So I was taking all kinds of history classes, but um, in that period, South African historiography was a super exciting field of scholarship. Um, And so those kind of twin interests in the activism and then the um, just studying history really opened up for me at the same time. Um, So although my first book and my first research in Africa was in East Africa and in Kenya, Um, I really had come to the topic of African history through South African history. And so from Kenya, you moved back to South Africa then with this topic of skin lighteners. Yeah. So um, my first book, um, as you mentioned, was Politics of the Womb, which was about reproductive politics in Kenya. Um, And so that was published in 2003 Uh, And I had a number of different second book projects, which I spent time working on before I finally settled on this project on skin lighteners. And what really drew me to this topic was the possibility of doing a transnational African history. What is it about a transnational African history that felt vital to you? So I would say my first book really was informed by the idea of bringing metropole and colony into closer conversations. So kinds of the tensions of empire arguments that people like Fred Cooper and Ann Stoller had really pioneered. Um, And yeah, I found a lot in doing that kind of history that was very satisfying. Um, But as I wrapped up that project, I came to understand more and more that there were dimensions of the 20th century history of gender in Africa and histories of the body in Africa in the 20th century 
that really couldn't be captured by just looking at the dynamic between metropole and colony. So in the case of Kenya, um, British Empire and the Kenyan colony, but rather there were things that had moved and reshaped gender history in Africa that really related much more to media and to capitalism, um, things that weren't really easily captured in the traditional archives that I felt gender historians were looking at. So whether those were um, mission archives or state archives. Um, And so that's really what then drew me into the topic, into doing transnational history. Well, I wanted to ask you about the sources in this book because they're incredibly diverse and they are, as you say, very unusual, I would say, for kind of traditional social history of Africa. You have um, sources in here like marketing reports and medical studies and lots of um, correspondence with regulators like the American Food and Drug Administration. And I was wondering what you had to learn as a historian in order to use these sources in your analysis? Yeah, I would say one of the main things I had to learn is that uh, there were very few archives where I could just plop myself down in those archives and get a lot of material from um, ordering up files that would have had the topic of skin lighteners on them. So basically archives and files like that did not exist at all for this project, um, which was hard for me because in my first book project, I really did enjoy all the time I spent in state archives and uh, mission archives. Um, But for this project, in some ways, I had to get much more creative um, in the sense of piecing together this history. So all kinds of printed materials became super important. Um, So definitely the popular photo magazines like Drum and like Zonk are absolutely indispensable to this project. And in some ways, the project really started with those photo magazines um, and knowing how um, common and pervasive skin lightener ads were in those magazines. But in addition to those photo magazines, um, South Africa made a lot of sense for this project because there was a deeper history of trade journals for South Africa than any other places I would have thought of doing this project in Africa. So pharma, uh, pharmaceutical journals, but also advertising and marketing journals for South Africa um, made a great deal of sense. Um, you mentioned the FDA archives, and those archives turned out to be really, really important for sorting out the history of the active ingredients and what were the active ingredients in skin lighteners and how those changed over the 20th century and what were the, some of the concerns about those. Um, so a lot of the South African companies looked to the U.S. Um, they looked to the manufacturers, but they also looked to the government regulations um, in the U.S. around these things. So let's set maybe the historical context of the book. It is mostly set in 20th century South Africa, but it certainly ranges wider afield, as we just mentioned, into the United States and East Africa. But it also ranges uh, further afield historically, so it begins earlier than the 20th century. Can you give us a sense of how you thought about the periodization of your work or where to begin and where to end? Sure. Um, So the first piece of this that I wrote was an article that was published in the Journal of African History, I think around 2005 or six. And that analyzed 
this beauty contest and the very earliest skin lightener ads that I could find targeting black consumers in the 1930s. So the, I originally started with this project in the 1930s and that partly came out of the modern girl around the world collaborative research project. So that was a group of six faculty at the university of Washington who together were interested in tracing out this figure of the modern girl. Um, and we were really focused on the 1920s and 30s. Um, so I wrote that piece, but then some of the really useful comment I got back on that piece was about trying to figure out what was the prehistory to the use of commercial skin lighteners. And so in the first chapter of the book, I um, try as much as possible to go back in time and reconstruct ideas about um, skin color, but really more broadly, the body surface and ideas that people had about caring for the body surface um, and cultivating the body surface. Um, and so to do that, I try as much as possible to reconstruct what kind of ideas and practices might have existed in pre-colonial Southern Africa. Um, and then I turn to look at what were the ideas about those things that European colonizers brought with them, but also forced migrants from parts of Southeast Asia or South Asia or even um, other parts of East Africa who were brought um, through um, enslavement um, and imprisonment to South Africa. So I tried to reconstruct that and then look at how those practices that people brought from the outside kind of collided or combined with ideas that already existed in Southern Africa. So that's how I got kind of that, back to that earlier time period. Um, and I was always interested in bringing the study to the present. So one of the key questions that had always motivated this research was my observation um, from the first time I spent any time in Africa. So in 1989 and 90 in Kenya, um, seeing that skin lighteners were very commonplace commodities in East Africa, um, but they were also highly controversial um, commodities at the same time. And I was always really interested in understanding that more. Um, so Tim Burke, uh, who wrote his boy, um, wrote his book, Life Boy Men, Lux Women. I was in graduate school with Tim. So when Tim was a graduate student at Hopkins, I was actually an undergrad. So I saw that project of Tim's um, unfold over time. And that work was hugely influential on this one. Um, so Tim in that book talks about skin lighteners a bit, and I really wanted to do a book length study that would dive into the issues in much more detail and really think about it from pre-colonial times um, to the present. You cover a couple of interesting reasons why people would have used um, brightening or lightening products, even clay, but also a type of bark mixed with water. Um, could you talk a little bit about those early practices? Yeah. So in that uh, first chapter, I really try to, again, reconstruct what this, what these pre-colonial and early colonial practices were related, related to the body surface. Um, and in terms of the Southern African practices that seem most relevant to what would later become commercial skin lightening, I think there are two or a couple different things in there. Um, so one would have been forms of bark. So David Livingston provides some of the most, um, some of the earliest documentary evidence we have of this practice. 
So in his travels up through central um, Southern Africa and into what is today Botswana, he encountered women who were basically chewing a certain kind of bark and kind of mixing that up together and applying it to their skin as a lightener. And that practice seems very similar to a practice that would be known in the 20th century and up until the present um, as umemezi. So umemezi takes the bark of certain indigenous trees to Southern Africa and uses them then basically as a depigmenting or a lightening um, agent. So there were some practices like that. There were also practices like the use of the shiniest, most saturated forms of red okra that would be um, combined with fats and oils and then applied to the skin. So you might think of that as very different than um, a skin lightener, and it certainly is in many, many ways. Um, but what I see the connection there is, is it's people applying substances to the body surface so that they in some ways looked brighter or shinier or they stood out. There was also another practice that we know um, was part of an extensive trade network that had existed for hundreds of years in Southern Africa, centered on what is now um, an archaeological site at Sodilo Hills in Botswana. So at Sodilo Hills, there was um, the mining of a mineral, which was a shiny mineral, um, called um, uh, Sobilo. And that was then also, it's a kind of like a shiny metallic substance that was mixed with animal fat as well, and then would be put in people's hair and on their bodies. Now, this would have been a very uh, much an expensive kind of luxury trade item, but we know that it was very valued. And early European traders would describe the appearance that um, Sobilo produced as one that made people's bodies glisten like diamonds. So this idea of treating the body surface in ways that made it stand out or appear bright and shiny, I think is one that has a deeper history in Southern Africa um, that is then different than the racialized history that skin color will come to have through colonialism and segregation and apartheid. But what I try to argue in the book is those different conceptions of the body um, become entangled with each other. Um, and that's part of then what gives the commercial um, market around skin lighteners force beginning in the early 20th century. Right. So before we talk about formal apartheid and more formal racialized ideas in South Africa, 1834 is the abolition of slavery. And how does that connect with um with these ideas coming from the Europeans in South Africa? Yeah, so the abolition of slavery uh, certainly was a change in certain ways with um, racial hierarchies, but as we know, those racial hierarchies continue to persist afterwards. Um, But there are very um, fine-tuned distinctions that come to be made then over the 19th century and the 20th century that distinguish people in South Africa Um, according to many things, but skin color is one of those indications then of whether people will fall into the category of being European or of being colored or mixed race um, or being um, seen as African. And so I would definitely argue that um, skin lighteners in South Africa, because of that, the very deep history of colonialism, which gives 
gives rise ultimately to a four-tiered racial hierarchy by the 20th century in South Africa um, really makes a difference and focuses even more intense scrutiny on what can be really pretty subtle distinctions in people's appearances, whether that's in terms of the curliness or straightness of hair um, or the tone of skin color as well. Right. You emphasize this in the book, which is that the use of skin lightening creams is very rarely employed to pass, right, from one category, one racialized category to another. But in fact, it is employed very often because it has really powerful, what you call material consequences as a technology of visibility. Could you unpack this for us? What could it mean to people who choose to use uh, skin lightening products um, in terms of, of what they see as the benefits of this practice? So it's, it's certainly possible that some people um, use skin lighteners in that very instrumental way to move from one racial category to get redesignated. So um, under apartheid, when you get to the 1950s, the most common efforts at official reclassification would have been people who were classified as African trying to be classified as colored or people who are classified as colored trying to be classified as white or European. So it's possible that people doing that um, might have employed skin lighteners as one kind of tool. But what we know from the work of Deborah Posel and other people is there were always many different considerations that factored into one's racial designation under apartheid. So their physical appearance was part of the story, but there was an enormous part of that story that had to do with um, accent or the way people walked and talked, and probably most importantly, where people lived and what were their social relations. So we know that under apartheid, the being able to vouch, so one's friends or neighbors being able to vouch that one was of a certain um, so-called race became really, really important. So it, again, it's possible that skin lighteners were used for those in those very instrumental ways, but they would have only been one part of kind of a larger package. Um, and so what I try to argue in the book is that there's really a more subtle social calculus going on that was often about within what would become a designated racial category. So these really minute hierarchies where being slightly um, lighter, having a slightly lighter tone of skin would be seen as making a difference in people's lives, whether that is in terms of um, attracting a more desirable partner or spouse, or whether being um, able to access new kinds or better kinds of employment opportunities. So certainly under apartheid, we know there were ads, say, in newspapers in Cape Town or the Western Cape that would specifically um, advertise, say, a position to be a sales clerk in a shop. And they would specifically ask for someone who was um, at a lighter tone or was lighter in color. Um, so there were those very material ways. And we also know from people's autobiographies that there were some women um, at, who would have been classified as African in the Western Cape, say after, so in the 1950s and 60s, who would have tried to pass as colored, not in terms of their official 
um, identity card or racial designation from the state, but rather to pass for it to get employment in factories. So in settings that would have been reserved um, for colored people. So yeah, so there are those very real material consequences. But I think there was also this notion that develops over the 20th century where there's an enormous amount of prestige um, and social capital attached to appearances that look whiter. And looking whiter is also looking lighter in this context. So there is, however, this kind of early critique, and we'll get to the later critiques, that comes up in the 1920s and the 1930s of an um, African middle class of, of males, right, men in particular, who, who tend to to dismiss these motives that you just discussed um, about these kind of more uh, practical or material thinking about the, the benefits of this practice. And what was their critique of the women who were using these products, notably in sending their photos into the Bantu world beauty contests? Yeah. So someone like R.R. Dlomo, who was the self-appointed editrice of the women's pages in Bantu world, was someone who was a virulent critic of um, cosmetics, really. So in the period that he's talking about, it wasn't so much skin lighteners, so products that um, would lighten the skin, as it was light-colored face powders that um, women were using, including African women, as part of cosmetic routines. So the light-colored um, powder would often be paired with lipstick. And to a figure like Blomo, he saw that as um, a sign of women being um, basically degrading the race by putting on these airs that were not wholesome and that would make them look like prostitutes. So there is a very moralizing middle-class critique of women um, and particularly middle-class women for using cosmetics like that. And that's a critique that we see attached to cosmetics all over the world for a very long time, certainly going back to the 18th century, um, but into the 20th century. Um, so whereas those women would have seen that they were crafting modern and respectable appearances, those men, so I would say men broadly coming kind of from a nationalist perspective, saw it as a modern possibly, but a disrespectable or disreputable form of modernity. Um, and that was really their critique of it. Um, there's There are one or two voices that appear in Bantu world in the 30s where you see an argument that's actually then going to be much closer to what Black consciousness activists will argue in the 1970s, which is an argument that women are trying to look like um, Indian women, so African women are trying to look like Indian women or colored women by using these cosmetics, and that that is bringing disgrace to the race, so that they're not being proud of being African. So on the one hand, we have this nationalist critique from um, African middle class uh, people, editors, these magazines. And the other, which I found very interesting, is in the third chapter of the book, Paradox in some way is that South African manufacturers of cosmetics and particularly pharmacists because of the South African context 
really, these white men are the ones who render visible African women as consumers in a way by targeting them for these for these products. And so can you explain why pharmacists in the 30s and 40s in South Africa have this outsized role in kind of uh, making African women emerge as a consumer category? I so appreciate a question about pharmacists because through this research, I um, grew to see them as absolutely fascinating and I rarely get any questions about them. So it's so good to talk about pharmacists. As far as I can tell from my research, there are two different ways that skin lighteners as commercial cosmetics enter South Africa and then end up being marketed to Black women. The first is there are products that are coming in internationally, um, and those would have been products that were um, targeting white women in South Africa. So there's a very long history for white women in many different parts of the world um, to be using skin lighteners. And in the 1920s, In places like the U.S. and South Africa, skin lighteners containing ammonia and mercury were some of the most common cosmetics that white women used. Okay, so in the 1920s, you have those international products coming in. And in the case of products that would be advertised to Black women in South Africa, you also have African-American-made cosmetics coming in. So companies like Valmore, Apex, um, began to have agents in South Africa. Those agents sold many, many different kinds of cosmetic products, but among them was often um, a skin lighter containing mercury. Okay, so you have that international trade that is both white and black companies coming in. Um, but then you also have pharmacists in South Africa who produce cosmetics. And skin lighteners are among the cosmetics that they produce. So most pharmacists probably throughout the 19th and 20th century would have preferred to have made a living just manufacturing and selling medicines. But the truth was it was very difficult to do that. And so many of them become involved in the manufacture of other things. So, and cosmetics are always complicated because even skin lighteners could be prescribed by um, a medical doctor. So they could be used for medical therapy but then they could also be used as a cosmetic. So pharmacists are always um, treading that line. So what seems to happen in South Africa is you have pharmacists who are manufacturing skin lighteners basically for a white clientele, so a white South African clientele. And somehow they figure out in the 1920s and 30s that there's a market for these same products um, among um, black and brown women. And so they begin marketing their products to those women. And then in the 1920s and 30s, at that same moment, many white women internationally are moving away from using skin lighteners and moving towards using tanning products, at least seasonally. And so what happens by the 1930s, certainly by the late 1930s in the U.S. and in South Africa, is that skin lighteners are products that are mainly seen as belonging to women of color, as opposed to white women, because that transformation um, has happened. So pharmacists then come to um, own these, the, what are the really big manufacturers in South Africa? So this starts with Carew, but then products like Butone would also be started by pharmacists. Um, and then even into Twins products, which becomes the major manufacturer by the 1970s, 
um, and that company is set up by Abraham and Solomon Kroc. Um, and one of them is an accountant and the other is a pharmacist. And so they combine their kind of experience um, to then create this company that manufactures cosmetics, including skin lighteners. So in the 1940s and 1950s, who are the, the women, the girls, and on some occasions, the men uh, using these products? So who would have they been? Um, so what we know about this is from a lot of circumstantial evidence, circumstantial in the sense that um, we get a lot of it from the magazines. So one of the few pieces of evidence that I have that comes directly um, from an African woman for this early time period for um, 1939-1940 is a woman named Zilpa Skota. So Zilpa Skota was married to Mwele Skota, who was a famous um, African nationalist in the mid-20th century in South Africa. And what we have from her is a letter that she wrote to her husband at a moment when he is living in Johannesburg, but because of their financial difficulty, she has been sent home to a more rural area where she's living with her family. And she sends him a letter and she says in her letter, um, you need to send me a jar of Karoo because my skin has already become darkened by the sun. So what she seems to be referring to there is that now that she's in this rural area, she's spending much more time outdoors, probably doing some agricultural labor or farming um, and other things that would just have her outdoors more. And that she's writing to ask him to send the skin lightener to her. And I would say Zilpa's profile is very much that of an African modern girl. So she's an African modern girl in the sense that she's um, she has schooling. She's Christian. She was the daughter of a minister. Um, and she sees herself, even though she's in this rural setting now, as someone who is in tune with modern ways. So she writes love letters. She sends photographs of herself to Mwale. And she's involved in this world of consumer culture. Um, so I would say the people who are using these products by the 50s and 60s are people who are involved in that world of that emerging world, really, of Black consumer um, culture. Um, and so it could be really any women who have access to a little bit of extra cash or um, have relationships with men who might be providing them with gifts like that. So it could be working class women, um, but it could also be women who would have seen themselves certainly as middle class, even if the economic challenges and the political challenges that they were facing were over that time period pushing them much more into the working class in terms of what their economic resources actually were. Right. And then so by the time we kind of get into the, the 1960s, there's a kind of larger political elements happening uh, in the background of the use of these products because we have the rise of the U.S. civil rights movement. We have, most importantly, probably decolonization happening on the African continent and people like Nkrumah and Nyerere who are promoting a very Afrocentric kind of nationalism. So talk about how the uh, you connected the study about skin lighteners mostly based in South Africa 
to what happens in Tanzania in 1968. Yeah, so there had certainly been a long traffic and ideas and products between African-Americans and Africans around the notions of beauty, um, including skin lighteners. Um, so even in the late 19th, early 20th century, some West African intellectuals who go and study in the U.S. will come back and write critiques of things like skin lighteners in African newspapers. Um, but what, so, and then we have someone like Tom Boya, who around 1959 or 60 uh, goes from Kenya. So he's a emerging political figure in Kenya. He goes um, to the U.S. and um, receives a lot of attention and a lot of attention from the African-American press in the U.S. Um, and he will criticize the use of skin lighteners in the U.S. So it's definitely this transatlantic conversation going on about these things. But by the late 1960s, and so specifically in 1968 in Tanzania, there's something called um, Operation Vijana that people like um, Andy Ivaska um, have written about um, quite nicely, which is an effort by Tanu, the ruling party, um, to really push back on what they see as these corrupting elements of Western consumer culture um, and corrupting elements that are really corrupting the youth or women. Um, and so there are a number of things that Operation Vijana takes aim at. So they take aim at mini skirts and wigs and bell-bottom trousers and also skin lighteners as well. And so in that context of the light, um, late 1960s, it really becomes an argument coming from African nationalists, um, African nationalists who are developing an idea of African socialism and see these products as kind of a corruption from the West. Um, Idi Amin in Uganda around the same time or a little bit later will also pick up on this and will ban um, skin lighteners as well. In Kenya, there will be a debate in the National Assembly about banning them, but the Kenyatta government generally takes a more liberal line on such things. And so what the Kenyan government actually ends up doing is banning specific ads, which they deem really offensive. Um, uh, most notably an ad by um, Ambi, which claimed that the new Africans were Africans who use skin lighteners. Um, African politicians, for a whole host of very good reasons, saw that as an incredibly offensive uh, message um, and banned those ads. But they in Kenya, the products were never banned. So we know that people in South Africa, so late 1960s, um, uh, is... Um, the height of apartheid in South Africa. So we know that, but we also know that people in South Africa knew that the, there were these um, nationalist campaigns against certain forms of consumptions happening in other parts of the continent. I find this really to be one of the most interesting parts of the book is, is tracing how the critique of this mostly female practice kind of emerges in different historical moments and used by by men and playing different roles you know so you have the 1930s kind of middle class respectability politics critique and now we're talking about uh, a socialist um, African nationalist critique and and they have overlapping and in similar uh, uh, ideas that are fundamental but they get kind of conjugated in these very different circumstances but of course we don't just have a political, 
critique. We also have a, a rising medical critique, right? That's something we haven't talked about yet. There are uh, oftentimes significant dangers to using these products and particularly to using these products for a sustained um, period of time. Yeah. And that medical, uh, I'm sorry, just to go back to the political critique for a second. So that trajectory that you were just talking about from the 1930s into the 60s, I really think we can see that as this shift from an idea of racial respectability around these debates about African modern girls using cosmetics to a shift in the 1960s and 70s to the notion of racial self-respect. So this idea that um, if people are proud um, of being Black and being African or African-American, they will eschew these um, kinds of products. So I would say that would be one way to kind of map that political um, trajectory. And I think what you're saying is absolutely right, that there's a lot of overlap, but it also changes over time. Um, The medical critique is a really interesting one as well. And it's also one that has very deep roots. Um, So we can even go back to really kind of the early modern period when what was Um, commonly used by elite European women wasn't a skin lightener, but a skin whitener, um, which was lead-based, so white lead-based paint. So um, Elizabeth um, is probably the most famous or infamous user um, of this product that was mainly manufactured in Venice um, and exported. Um, but we also know other people used it as well. And it's actually not entirely clear how much of it she used or whether she was vilified for using it. Um, but this is all to say that medical people knew, and also going back to Greek and Roman times, that there were um, negative health consequences from using these products. By the late 19th century, it's really mercury that's being used in these products and usually in the form of ammoniated mercury. And then we are in the realm of skin lighteners, So ammoniated mercury um, lightens the skin by two different mechanisms. Um, One, it creates um, basically an acidic compound that helps to exfoliate the skin, which will remove the more tanned outer layers of the skin. But mercury also inhibits the production of melanin. So at a biochemical level, it interferes with the enzyme tyrosinase, which produces melanin. So melanin is is what makes the skin colorful. So mercury actually interferes with the production of melanin. Um, And so that is why it was um, used um, in skin lighteners. So again, these products would have been used by medical doctors, say, to um, to help patients whose skin might have been scarred Um, and darkened by things like um, being burn victims or having um, acne. Um, But then it was also used in commercial products as well. Um, And so even in the 19th century, people know that mercury can be toxic. Um, When the FDA then takes on cosmetics in the late 1930s as something that falls within its purview, ammoniated mercury is one of the very first categories of cosmetics that the FDA goes after and tries to um, regulate by limiting the amounts of ammoniated mercury. So by 1940, those amounts aren't supposed to be more than 5% in any cosmetic solution, 5% of ammoniated mercury. Um, So that then continues around that same time though, there's a new active ingredient 
that is discovered through a series of industrial accidents. And that um, ingredient is hydroquinone. So hydroquinone also works in the same way that mercury does to um, lighten the skin. It interferes with this enzyme tyrosinase that is involved in the production of melanin. Um, So when cosmetic manufacturers first start using hydroquinone in the 1950s and 60s, they see it as a safer alternative to mercury. Um, In the uh, mid-1970s then, the U.S. will ban mercury entirely from cosmetics, except in trace elements and things like mascara. Um, and in that case, mercury is used as an, um, an antibacterial. Um, but basically, by the mid-70s, the U.S. and then many other um, governments around the world, including South Africa, will ban mercury from skin lighteners. But by that point, there's this other active ingredient that's replaced them, um, which is hydroquinone. And initially, people think hydroquinone is much safer. What will be revealed in South Africa is that the very heavy use of hydroquinone over a long period of time, particularly when used by people who live in environments where there's really high ultraviolet radiation exposure, which is true of much of South Africa, particularly where people live at higher elevations, um, is that that can combine then to produce um, a damaging effect on the skin known as exogenous ochronosis, which is basically a darkening and a scarring of the skin tissue. And there are some quite vivid images from these medical studies um, of the effects that these products have on the skin in the book, which really drive home the, the point of the effects it can have. So, so we have this kind of rising sense, at least among some parts of the medical community, that there are these can have these really negative consequences to people's health over time. And yet, kind of paradoxically, as you point out, the uh, kind of by the 1970s, the rising critique of uh, these products coming out of the Black consciousness movement, which is mostly made up of students who are studying medicine. Uh, it doesn't really connect the the political critique to these medical effects. So that is was so fascinating to me in doing this research, how you basically have this medical critique and this political critique gaining ground in South Africa during the 1970s. And there's very little explicit connection with them. So Many of the men and the women involved in Black consciousness and its uh, and were its leaderships were medical students or medical doctors or nurses, um, and but when they elaborate their critique of skin lighteners, it really is very much the political argument um, against them as an argument about structural racism and the way that people have come to have a false consciousness through structural racism to believe that their appearances are inadequate and that they um, should lighten their skin color. So they pretty much stick to the political critique, even though they would have been very aware of the physical damage that skin lighteners were doing to people's bodies. And then at the same time, you have dermatologists, um, white dermatologists by and large, who are seeing what they really define as an epidemic of this exogenous ochronosis and other problems um, stemming from skin lighteners. Um, 
And so, and they are publishing in articles like the British Journal of, of Medicine and leading U.S. dermatology journals, as well as South African medical journals um, about this issue. Um, and then it's really only in the 1980s, the early 1980s, that this Black consciousness critique then comes to join up with um, the medical critique. And so there's really a new generation of white medical professionals who I would say are more politicized um, and are more interested in making those connections. Um, And then the Black consciousness activists um, who are also doing a lot of activism around consumer and kind of consumer boycotts um, then come to be involved in this as well. And it's really when those two critiques become conjoined under the broader umbrella of the anti-apartheid movement that they really gain traction together. So tell us what happens in August 1990 at the close of, of your story. Okay, August 1990. So that is when the South African um, parliament passes what are still the most comprehensive regulations against skin lighteners anywhere in the world. So what the South African government does is it outlaws active ingredients. So mercury had already been banned, but it also bans hydroquinone um, as well. Um, And so a number of other countries will do that soon after South Africa does it. But what South Africa does that has really not been done anywhere else since then is the South African government makes it illegal for any cosmetic manufacturers to claim that their products can lighten, whiten, or bleach the skin. So it's, it's so it's still true in South Africa today that it is not legal for cosmetic manufacturers to make those kinds of claims. Um, and so what that part of the regulation really demonstrates to me is how the regulations in South Africa really grew out of this broad-based anti-racist movement, so the anti-apartheid movement. And so you can really see that history um, in those regulations today. And so that happened in 1990, really in the waning months um, of the apartheid regime, and was really an effort by um, the National Party government to demonstrate some kind of credibility in a wider set of political discussions that were going on then about the transition um, to what would ultimately be democratic rule in South Africa. And yet, despite this banning, right, there still remains an extremely um, widespread and popular practice and not only in South Africa, but really all over the world, in the Americas, in, in Asia, in the Middle East, and in other parts of Africa. You note that in West Africa, there um, are, said some studies suggest between 60 and 70% of women are, are using skin lightening or skin brightening products. And I wanted to ask you, on the one hand, what you think might account for the tenacity of this cosmetic practice. And on the other, if you encountered any resistance to this topic as you approached it, particularly earlier on in your research, because there is something in in some way, I think, from the academic perspective, because of these critiques, you know, these, these critiques that we've kind of outlined throughout this conversation that see it as a shameful practice and something to not be investigated. And yet the tenacity of it demonstrates that it is um, really 
universal in some respects. And we're talking about an industry that is approaching $30 billion worldwide in sales. So how do you kind of thread this needle between this tenacity and also the resistance, perhaps, on behalf of some academics to confront its tenacity? So that's a great question. And so just to go back one second to the South African regulations. So when if you look at South Africa today, there is a robust illegal trade in skin lighteners. So I think it makes sense that people might say those the regulations of the 19 of 1990 really didn't make a difference at all. What they did make a difference um, in at least in the 1990s is they shut down domestic manufacturing. So Twins Products was a company that was going full bore um, in 1990. And it was pretty much shut down then over a couple months period of time. So the regulations did make a difference in terms of domestic um, production. Pretty quickly, though, products begin to be imported illegally from outside. Um, and that now has grown over the 2000. And it also seems like even some in-country manufacturing, even though it's not legal, has come back um, in South Africa. Um, but to the broader question that you're asking about the tenacity and even the growing popularity of these products, like how we make sense of that um, in, um, in this. So in terms of my own involvement in this research over many years, um, you know, I have faced various questions. So I am a white American woman um, working on this topic. So over the years, I've definitely gotten many questions from all different kinds of people about why I would be interested um, in this topic. Um, and what I've really tried to point to is the fact that at various points, this has been a very popular um, practice. And in some ways, it is only becoming more popular in certain parts of the world today. And that the understandings that we have of it um, really have always lacked historical depth. Um, and so I really saw doing research on this as a way to um, really engage with the depth of the history and kind of reconstruct what that history was. And also to show how white women um, like me were, have also been part of this history. So they were part of the earlier history in using these products, but they're actually part of the history once again in the 21st century, because many of the products that are now marketed as anti-aging products are products that really are targeting white women who have spent many years um, of their lives tanning and now in later age um, have developed sunspots and such things. Many of those products actually have ingredients in them like hydroquinone. So um, there's a way in which skin lighteners today are once again, not just being marketed to women of color, but under a slightly different guise, they're also um, being marketed to women who have, um, melanin poor skin or uh, um, pale skin. Um, so yeah, so in the, the point about this being a frivolous practice is definitely a question or a concern that was raised about the research at various points. Um, but again, I really saw it as a way to talk about these processes like consumer capitalism and visual media that I think are so important to understanding gender in the 20th and in the 21st century. Um, but that have been, I think, pretty hard for historians of gender in Africa actually to um, grab a hold on to. 
Um, I would say there are um, a number of great anthropologists, including um, people like Yaval Blay, who have done really excellent work on um, the contemporary practice and have written much more ethnographies of contemporary practices, which dive pretty deeply into these complex issues around popularity and shame and kind of secrecy and publicity that surround these products. So the title of the book, Beneath the Surface, A Transnational History of Skin Lighteners. Could you tell us how you came to this title? It's very beguiling. And it, it you very craftily kind of use this metaphor of skin, right? And then in the book, you talk a lot about the layered meanings of, uh, of this cosmetic practice for all of these stakeholders that we've discussed. And your conclusion there, you talk about sedimented meanings. So you use these words very much to kind of craft a narrative uh, practice or a narrative approach in the book. So this title, where does it come from? And what is the thing that you would like the people who've listened today to really take away from, from this work? So I love this question about the title and the vocabulary around sedimented, sedimented meanings. Um, so what's fascinating to me is how incredibly late in the process, the title and even that vocabulary came into the book. So it really was beyond the 11th hour. Um, I had long had a working title for the book that I didn't like at all. And I was sure I actually wouldn't use, but I could never think of a better title. And then I think I was at, I was getting close to the final version before copy edits. And I went out for drinks with two friends, um, Preeti Ramamurti and Janelle Taylor. And I told them that we could not leave the drinks until we had figured out a much better title for the, the book. And so we started tossing around ideas and we came up with this beneath the surface. And as soon as I heard it, it felt right because what it did, it felt like it had absolutely described what I had spent all these years trying to work on, which was trying to figure out what animated um, this process or this practice and to try to understand it in both its chronological depth and then its social and political complexity. And so beneath the surface then just seemed to encapsulate all of that for me. And the same thing with the um, layered history. There's a way in which I wrote a layered history, or I think I wrote a layered history, and then very late in the process figured out that that was um, what I should call it. So I would also say my um, friend Lisa Lindsay was pretty instrumental in helping me see how I could draw out that language um, in the introduction and throughout the book and into the conclusion. Well, it's certainly a very beautifully done and fascinating book. And I really urge people to... Um, to, to get it into their hands because the audio can't possibly do justice to how gorgeous an addition this is. And there's so many images that go along with the text that really bring out so much of, of the meaning of what you want to say and, and just are totally arresting. So I really urge people to actually get a physical copy in their hands uh, and, and look at these images and connect them to the story that you're telling. Lynn, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thank you so much. This was a great pleasure. <laughs>